first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, John The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Well, thanks Thank for you so on. much, John. For, yeah, man, for, for doing this yeah. so, uh, so fast and uh, late. We managed <laughs> to get a lot of people together here. Um, cool. So, uh, Jihar is actually not usually the host. Jihar is, is a very well-known uh, um, <laughs> Doom, Quake, uh, esports uh, um, commentator and, and organizer and so on. So he knows everything there is to know about, about uh, well, everything you worked on as well. Ty, cool. the actual host, he's asleep right now. <laughs> because when I got Brenda's message, it's like, Ty, oh, right. wake up. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so Jihar like is... <laughs> he's gonna be uh, sorry he's when he gonna wakes be up. pissed off and i want to hear what that yeah. sounds like when he when he wakes up <laughs> reaction video <laughs> but uh thank, thanks right. for again for hopping on and uh yeah i guess there's been a lot to to catch up on right because you haven't been uh as vocal <laughs> lately not since like the sigil release right like uh you've been kind of yeah. doing your own thing you're still in galway right yep cool yeah we're still in galway well uh, what's it been like there? Um, it's been a, a crazy year for everybody, but it, it's kind of manifested in different ways for us all. Um, from like the Doom and Quake communities, there's been like kind of a resurgence. People have more time at home. Surprise, surprise. So there's been a ton of activity. <laughs> um, have you been pretty active yourself? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we, we're working every day on our game. Uh, so that's, you know, years before the before COVID. <laughs> yeah, so, so that explains. We just started working at home. <laughs> that explains the cave, right? Because once you start actually going into real dev mode, um, you don't want to go outside for a while. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not really a problem. I mean, it is really nice outside. <laughs> <laughs> it is really nice right now, at least. It yeah. wasn't uh, a few Of course it is. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> I have the excuse that it's um, miserable outside, so I'm, I'm happy to be in, in my cave. Yeah. Um, but I haven't been easier. developing anything, uh, so you've been working your, your fingers to the bone? Uh, yeah, just working away on Empire of Sin. You know, it's turning out really great. We're really happy with it. Um, so that's super cool. Um, working on a Dangerous Dave Big Box Collector's Edition kind of thing. Um, oh my god, that sounds that sounds fantastic! Tell us more about that. I'm I, I mean, I'm interested in Empire of Sin, but come on, yeah, <laughs> Big Boxes, Dangerous Dave. <laughs> What's oh that yeah, about? yeah. Well, the original Dave. Um, you know, there have been. There have actually been a lot of, I think, 12 versions of Dave released. Um, there's the 1988 Apple II version. Then there's my 1990 PC version, which everybody knows, you know, like that's the one that got out. It's funny, the, the, the reason why it's, it was, it's been so popular in India and Pakistan, because when people bought their computers, 
the people who sold the computers would install Dave on every computer. So it was like Solitaire, Minesweeper, and Dave <laughs> in those two countries forever. And, um, and so it got really, really popular, like even more than Doom, which is pretty nuts. All paid uh, copies, so, surely. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're fr- no. The, the funny thing about Dave is it's been free ever since I've made Dave. <laughs> At least the ones that I've made, they've yeah. always been a free game, like a demonstration of something. You know, like the very first Dave on the Apple II was a demo for the uh, Apple Soft Basic assembly language add-on that I created, so people could make arcade games with my add-on, but from Basic. And Dave was an example of like how you could do that. So it was free, almost. You know, it was like, here, here's the game that, that shows you how to use this thing. And then the 1990 version of Dave was the free sampler demo disc for Gamer's Edge uh, to show people what kind of games they would get on Gamer's Edge. So that was free. And then when I put out the re-release of Dave in 2015 on iOS and Android, or no, it was just iOS, um, that was a free game because it's a mobile download and it's free to play. So you could get that for free as well. It's been free all the time. It's basically been free the whole time. So now I'm finally going to, you know, sell a big box and see if people want that. Because it's going to have, like, a bunch of cool stuff in inside the box. Like, the the USB is a shotgun shell. Oh, that's so cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the trophies and little gems and stuff like that that are show, from the game. Uh, are all show, him your, uh, show him your ammo box. The, the oh, ammo box. well, this was just like an eBay find, right? Because the actual like ammo crate that was used for the final Doom like box, like this is yeah, the actual like that's, right. that's the crate. That's it. Um, I wow. still need to like redo the sticker because it didn't come out quite with the colors I wanted. But you know, I might throw a Raspberry Pi. You found, there or you found the one that they took the picture of. Yeah, yeah, this is it. Like, <laughs> yeah. and what was impressive to me is that it wasn't just the front cover; it was the back cover too, because where they had like the the screenshot of the end. Oh yeah. With the firewall. Oh the yeah, they were and, like, they all were the copy in those and stuff. So they use both sides of the box. So who knows? I might like you, wow. get all the copy. You need on to there. build a computer into that one. <laughs> that was um, it's very airtight. It's very thick walls. The heat dissipation would be non-existent, which is by design. But it's fun. That was um, the Richards Group R and D team in Dallas uh, that did that. They're the ones that did all of our advertising and and, and um, our boxes from Quake forward even through ion storm so as soon as we were getting into well actually it was before quake um hexen might have been the first thing that we did with them and they're the ones who did all of the hummer advertising so when hummer was doing all of their trucks and stuff back in the 90s you Is know, that why you the got ones... your, uh, your yellow Hummer back then? Was that because of that? <laughs> no, actually, I got it beforehand. It was like this bizarre coincidence that like, I, I got you know, the yellow one was my second one. And, uh, and when I had that one, we also got involved with the, the Richards group. And then we found out, oh, they, they're the ones doing all the, the Hummer ads and the booklets and all that stuff you know, for the dealerships. Yeah. So um, that was, and they look really good. And they had a new R&D department because they wanted to get into games. So the Hummer stuff was not part of R&D. And the R&D department was like, they're ultra creatives. They'll do crazy things. And uh, and so that's how we got with them. And then we had them kind of do Hexen as a like a test. And then after we started doing stuff with them, then Scott Miller wanted to start using them for Duke Nukem. So they're the ones who did the Duke stuff. 
It, that, that's really fun because we we tried to find um, find the guy who did the you know the classic illustrations for 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 Duke uh, to do some more stuff for us and and we we realized that he it's one of those people who are not into games at all they have no idea yeah. what they're doing they, they just get told hey he needs to look a bit like Schwarzenegger and Stallone yeah. mixed together yeah um, we found out that he owns a, a Christian art gallery and after. Duke was released after he realized <laughs> what kind of games that he was actually making artwork for. He yeah. just decided, I'm never touching this again. And then he <laughs> kind of retired to do Christian artwork. But you're saving them. Really wow. You're saving them. That's fine. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. The, so, uh, the guy, the guy who did the doom, uh, logo also in the cover of the, the game box had nothing to do with games ever. That's fascinating. That how much? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how much of that process was like a back and forth? I mean, you, you said that they were the creatives. Was it like totally like go nuts and you get oh, it back once? With or... Richard's group, yeah, we. Yeah. I would go over there a lot. You know, I went over there a lot, and I got to know everybody there. And we sat down and kind of they tell me what their ideas were, and I would just say, "Yeah, that's cool. Try it." You know, because they would make little comps of everything, and then we get to choose the direction that we like. And then, you know, they, they sometimes like, oh, we got a really cool idea for Hexen for like scratching stuff up and everything. Yeah. So we're just like, go ahead, go nuts. And then we'll see if we like it, you know, and they, and it was, and it was cool. Cause they, they also use external people who were really artistic as well. So yeah. like the Hexen thing, the layout and, and design stuff was done internally, but like the, the character on Hexen was done by an external artist. And so he was like taking pictures of stuff and doing all these, you know, layering pictures and all this crazy stuff. So it was really neat. And they also did our um, radio ads for um, the Ultimate Doom and for Hexen. So I have those radio ads as well. And they, you know, like with the radio ads with Hexen, they did multiple ads for each of the characters, like the cleric and you know oh, nice. the, the barbarian, you know. Did they also do the um, the master level stuff with like the the one like skull with like the cool little like yeah. curvy yeah they took, thing? they took Adrian's wow. uh, yeah they took Adrian's art and it was already a black and white pencil sketch anyway, so it was easy for them to just kind of take that and wrap it around the box. Uh, but they did everything. They did Final Doom and they did um, like the Daikatana Dic box. Uh, the bitch ad was done by a woman at R and D. All the same stuff. <laughs> She's yeah. the one who came up with because yeah, all that stuff. She came like up with the, the everything. The, the Quake box boxes. I mean the Hexen stuff. Uh, Doom. I mean all Heretic of that is as like well. yeah. Mm. All of that is like typically not Heretic. Heretic was not. Oh really? Them. Okay. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, did, yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. We did Heretic internally. What happened was Brom did Doom 2's box. Uh, Boris Vallejo's wife julie yeah, bell Brown, did the yeah. original yeah right so she did the original one and we didn't like the way the cyber demon looks so we just said we're not going to use that forget it so then we went with brahm and he did an amazing job with doom 2 and you know right after that because doom 2 came out just a few months before uh heretic did so we we're just like hey can you do a cover for our next game it's called heretic and there's this is what's in it so he did the heretic as well and <laughs> hey gerald you got that game we <laughs> It was it was so good, it, you know. His art is so good that we used it to make the poster inside the game, and on the back of the poster is the entire manual, and you can just fold the yeah. whole thing up, and so it's not a useless manual. You can undo the whole thing, and now it's a poster on your wall. <laughs> yeah, so I, I it was a useful that. manual, especially the um, the Shadow of the Serpent Rider, the second release with the uh, with the new box art with the skull in the middle and the book. 
that especially yeah. has a really special place for me. Um, that one and Hexen 2, um, they're both a very specific type of box art and they just look, they're very similar to Sigil as well in terms of the type of box. You have some kind of tome or a book or something with a, yeah. with a in the middle. It's super cool. I don't know how far along um, our research group R&D was involved after we moved everything over to Activision because I think they took their, they did their own stuff. Yeah. Uh, but when GT was doing it, we're the ones who told basically said, hey, GT, this is who we're using. So they're like, okay. But then as soon as it goes to Activision, everything shifts over to Activision. And I think that Heretic 2 was Activision. Yeah. All of John, those uh, are, are like 90s as fuck, but they're part of why we call yeah. 90s as fuck, 90s as fuck. I mean, they, that was like the genesis of a lot of that look. Um, and and Fred, yeah, mentioned, that Fred mentioned the, yeah. the sigil box, um, which yeah, is beautiful. But now we're, we're like, harking back to what those what like three or four guys like did like all these years later we're, we're still trying to like get that same vibe out of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> the sigil is great form. you know the whole box art form it's it's kind of lost oh this yeah, yeah. Art form of creating your know, beautiful illustrated box art is there's not many doing it left unfortunately yeah with sigil uh i did two boxes and i didn't want the logo on the front yeah. So that's different, right? Because normally you have the game box and you have the game's logo and title on it. So Sigil, I didn't want to have that on there. More enigmatic, arcane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just the art. It's just it's not the name of the game. It's the art that's there. Yeah. You know, and it looks and the logo is pretty cool too. With the 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 box, uh, the the beast box has a six 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 in the center, and that is like this the center of the logo. It's S I six 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 I L, and that was. That was pretty cool. That was developed at Romero Games. It's been a little over, like, what, a year and a half since the release of, of Sigil? May. Uh -oh. May of yeah. 2019. May 31st is when I finally uploaded it. And that's just because I, I wanted to make sure that the people who bought the boxes didn't have everybody playing the game before they got theirs. Right. Um, because the box... One of the, one of the draws of the box stuff is that you would get Buckethead's soundtrack. And people were saying, "Well, why couldn't you? Why didn't you just release the um, the game, the free version, before everybody got that?" And the reason is because I wanted them to get it first. I wanted them to get Buckethead soundtrack before anyone else could get it. And if I had released the Buckethead soundtrack version that I have on the site right now, then that would have been like everybody got the really cool stuff immediately. Yeah. So I just kind of held back on it a little bit until um, until the boxes came out then i released the free version and the buckethead version for the for 666 yeah take notes fred <laughs> <laughs> let's dive into the past a little bit because i i'm super interested in hearing something i think most uh, people don't know know you for and that's going mm -hmm. all the way back to the apple II days uh, soft disk days as well so so how did you start getting interested in games like when when did you start <laughs> playing and working and so on. I played games in the 70s like crazy. So pinball before video games. Um, played pinball all the time when I was really young. And I went to an arcade in uh, Arizona that was called Spanky's. And it was great. <laughs> it was a classic, dark, rectangle, you know, and, and cool, which is nice because it was in Tucson, Arizona, where it's 100-something. So it was a really great place to go. It was really cold, and there's pinball machine, like 30 pinball machines in there. So that AC was really working. And uh, you know, after like it was probably 
mid seventies. And a, one day when I go over there, uh, this big machine is, is on the opposite wall of the pinball machines. And it's a game called dune buggy. And it's a giant cabinet, you know, like a pinball machines are pretty big cabinets too, but this yeah. is, this is taller than I am. And you know, there's glass in the front of it. It's not like horizontal, like a pinball machine. It's, it's on the front. And when you look into it, you see like this landscape and there's a black light on fluorescent paint all over the thing. And it looks really cool. And I was like, what is this? You know, and you put your quarter in and you're basically maneuvering a car on a rotating uh, landscape, trying to avoid the other cars that are there. And the other cars are, um, they're Pepper's ghost illusions. So it's like, you know, you have a physical car that just kind of goes back and forth in front of you going around hills and stuff like that. And the ghost cars are moving around and you're just trying to avoid them. And, uh, and it was really cool. It was, they're called electromechanical uh, arcade games. And that was before true like electronic video games. So it was, there's, it was a mechanical disc moving around in there. And that's the reason why when arcade game, like when video games really started going, why that cabinet size remained is because they already were making those cabinets. Even though when the video arcade games started happening, there's just a motherboard in there and a CRT and it's all empty, but they had that, they already were making cabinets. They already, they already solved that problem and people were used to it. So just deliver them a different thing instead of a piece of glass. Now it's a, a monitor and it's still the same form factor and it can, you know, it's a big showpiece, you know, in an arcade. You know, and those people want to market the hell out of everything. So the bigger, the better. And it's like, well, this is how big they are, you know. And um, and so uh, eventually there was a Targ uh, video game next to it. That was probably the first video game that I played, which is before I played Space Invaders. And then and then after that was uh, probably Asteroids. And also just a ton of um, games from um, Exidy. You know, like there's gunslingers and all this other stuff. So I played games all the time. Night Driver, you name it. All these 70s games that were pretty lame. But back then, it was really cool because there's nothing like it. How much of your week um, did you spend at Spanky's? Where did well, you get the money for all for all this? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, it was the funny thing is I got, uh, this was like in the summertime when I was going to my grandma's. And I got a dollar a day. And that's four games. Right. <laughs> So I needed to get really good. You got to get good, <laughs> yeah. Good and selective. Spend as much time as I could. <laughs> the funny thing is every day I had to make a choice. I have a dollar, and I can either play four games or I can buy a Hot Wheels car. Oh. Because <laughs> it was exactly a dollar. <laughs> and so some days I did have to choose to get a Hot Wheels car, you know, or a truck or something cool. Um, but then uh, when I had more money, you know, like – when I started really getting into it, I needed more money. So I got a, I got a, a paper route and I was probably 12. And that paper route was basically, I had to, I had to wake up at three in the morning and basically fold a, about a hundred newspapers that are just delivered to my, to the house. And I, and I need to do it outside because I can't get that ink all over the the carpet in the house because there's a ton of ink. ink comes off on everything when you're doing that. So I was folding as fast as I could. And then I basically have these huge bags and I put these, you know, put them on, put as many papers as I can and then ride my bike out into the, you know, pretty cold 
usually weather at three in the morning. It was probably about four by that time because it takes about an hour to fold all these things. And then uh, take as few rides as I can, you know, to go and chuck these newspapers. And with that many customers, the, the crazy thing is that I need to remember everyone who's supposed to get a paper. It's not everybody on the street. It's, it's the White House. You don't, you don't give a, a paper to the yeah, Red exactly. House. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly like the game, except and you so have where, to were you, were you good? I, I guess you were really good at Paperboy. <laughs> I, I, it was a hard game to it's control. Really <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> um, I played that in 85 when it came out. But anyway, that was... that was uh, I, I then would get done by 6.30, and then I'd basically jump in the shower and have to get ready for school because the bus picked me up at 7.15 in the morning. So it was, yeah, from 3 a.m. I'm awake. I have to go to sleep about 9. So, um, yeah, but I made money so I could, you know, play lots of video games. And Pac-Man was, like, the, the big game for me. It was huge. Um, but I got into programming when, uh, in 1979, just before, you know, like, this is Asteroids time, time period, just before Pac-Man, which was 1980. And I, my friend said, he, he rode his bike to my house and said, I found a way that we can play games with no money. I'm like, uh, I'm there. <laughs> so I jumped on my bike and followed him and my brother, and they basically rode up to the local university, like the, the state or the, the town college kind of thing, community college, uh, which is a pretty big college. And we rode right up to the um, computer science building and went inside, and it's the summertime, so uh, the heat, the, the, the air differential was like 40-degree difference. <laughs> 30, 30 to 40 degrees, which was great. felt really great. But this yeah. was because it was 1979, and this, this school was, you know, in 1979, the, that was only two years after the first Trinity of home computers was released, right? Like the PET and the TRS-80 and the Apple II. That was only two years later. So it had old stuff in it. So there was a mainframe in the next room, and there were 25 monitors in the main room. Uh, just terminals, and those terminals were all connected to the mainframe, and there were probably a few students in there that were basically learning how to program BASIC and doing their doing their labs. And I went in there my, with my friend, and he had access to an account from a friend of ours who, who was going to the college, and he was just down the street. He lived just down the street from us, so we got on the computer, and he started pl you know playing games like uh, Hunt the Wumpus and Poison Cookie and Nim and all of these mainframe text game things until finally I got to see adventure and that was really like wow this is really cool and then i found out that you could actually program these things because because he said yeah that's what these guys are doing here they're they're programming things like this i'm like i want to learn how to do that so i started asking those students <laughs> what they were typing and writing down like the different basic keywords that they were telling me and what they were what they did and i go back to that terminal and started experimenting with it and started making my first adventure game. It was super, super, you know, simple, but it was just learning how the basic language worked and, um, and you know, uh, saving it was uh, me typing the program again uh, on a, a card punch machine, you know, like those, those yeah, cards yeah. that you would feed into the mainframe uh, and also paper tape, you know, printed out on spools of tape so it could read it back in. So, um, so I got the whole like mainframe experience when I was learning how to program and no one ever kicked me out, which is great because I could come there every day and nobody would kick me out. And 
that was the basically how did I learn how to program? There was, was probably me. more going on <laughs> behind the scenes there, right? Because I mean, did you ever find out later if there was somebody who was kind of aware of your presence there, but also making sure that nobody interfered with you? Was was there any awareness no, of anybody nah. like that? You were just totally on the radar. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was no fly on the wall. Nobody, no authority. Anybody, just students. Wow. It's it's so, fun that, that that guys in, in your generation who who are where you are now and 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 have worked with games for so many years, many of them have pretty much the same story. Like I remember, uh, I remember talking to Scott, and and he's he did the exact same thing when he lived in Australia. He was sneaking into the university in in like in the summertime, and he just started working on the Apple IIs. And then instead of getting kicked out, he was told. Here's a key, and you can work as much yeah. as you want on these computers because when you like, God, it's, it's that would have been nice. Because for a while, same... everybody was yeah. kind of at the same level of exposure, right? It was all like exactly. new and exciting and prospective to everybody at the same time. And so at at that point, like whether you're eight, eighteen, who gives a fuck? Yeah, well, I was eleven. Well, so uh, <laughs> so that, <laughs> yeah. that's the difference. I went to a university at eleven and self-taught myself how to program. Um, that's pretty amazing. And, that was that's different than other people and it would have been great if i was older because i would learn probably faster because there were, weren't any books back then i mean it was really hard to get that get information back then so yeah, i'm lucky to have uh, my ibm basic manual <laughs> the you know the brown three yeah, binder. to get a manual and, and that's not even like a, a procedural manual it's just one page per function and it just tells you oh, the syntax yeah. and that's all you get so yeah, yeah that's it that. it's just a reference guide right. it's a reference um, yeah, that was until we got a computer, which was in 1982, I would go to the college uh, in the summertime. And then normally after school, I would go to a store that had computers in it. And there were only a few. And and I would see if they would let me use the computer. And I would basically know, I know that I'm typing stuff in that's going to get thrown out as soon as I shut the machine off because I don't have a disk or anything. So it's just like me practicing. And I have a feeling that they probably thought that that was a really good sales tool. Like a kid can use it. Come on, why don't you want to buy this <laughs> machine? You know, so um, so I was just using using uh, computers all over town. Luckily, they all used Basic. They all had Basic in them. So I was using TRS 80s and Atari 800s and Apple IIs all around town until we finally got our Apple II at home in 1982, and that was it for like being a normal kid going outside <laughs> playing around the creek and the golf course all that kind of stuff i was done with you know sunlight it was like all about being in front of that computer <laughs> entered the darkness and when the yeah came. Uh, from there of course i mean a lot of a lot of people know that you kind of ground away getting your own games out the door um a lot of them were even pretty original concepts like they weren't you didn't do too many like Pac-Man clones right like you kind of had some ideas initially that you wanted to get out there and materialize. Uh, I I know it's probably difficult to like crystallize what that was like at that younger age, like having a concept and needing to get it on the screen. But how did you bridge that gap? It was it was awesome. Yeah, yeah I mean it, the 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 um, the instant response from the computer to my typing stuff in is the reason why you keep going. You know, and and people don't realize that back then it was so much easier to type something into a computer and see it. You know, nowadays you can't like when the computer boots up, it's into a graphical operating system and you have to get an app or an application or an ID or something to actually get into the mode where you can actually type things. And then you got to learn this IDE that's like Photoshop 
to program and then to see something come up and you gotta read all these guides and books and stuff and and back then computers shipped with manuals that told you how to program them immediately within minutes so you turn the computer on it goes beep and there's a cursor like it's within a millisecond your cursor's on the screen you can start typing there's no booting really of anything unless you wanted to boot into an operating system to save that thing and then it would take an extra like 10 seconds maximum so you're at a prompt and you can immediately start typing 10 print quote hello quote you know enter run and you see it on the screen immediately and you just got feedback and it was success and now i want to keep on doing more so that's how you get that's how you keep driving forward and the more things that you learn the more you want to experiment with them and, and for me it was like how do i make a game out of this so every time i would make a game it was always with the goal of learning something new about the computer so i would say I want to do, geez, a game in low-res graphics so I don't do it in text. And so I learned how to use low-res graphics, and I decided I'm going to make a crazy climber clone or something like that, which is just have fun doing that. That's a lot of work. But anyway, I tried it, you know, and I got I got a low-res building on the screen and got a character moving around on it and uh, accidentally deleted that unbelievably. So I was like, okay, well, i got to make something else. And then I learned that there's a high-resolution mode. So now I want to use high-res. And then I make a game called uh, Dodge'em. You know, and then I, I'm like, I'm not satisfied with that. I want to have this, you know, and so I come up with another concept to make that game. And so every game was a new way to learn something while making a new thing or exploring maybe a genre a little bit more. Like back then, maze game was a genre. Right. And so making maze games was like, that was one of the biggest things. You know, Pac-Man was like the ultimate maze game at that point. Um, so they were all like, you know, so I was doing a lot of maze game type stuff. Was there um, and a crossover just, point where your confidence with the tool sets kind of got eclipsed by you having your own voice with the kind of games that you wanted to make and the, the tone you wanted to convey? Um, well, I knew, um, all, all is funny cause it felt like I had been programming in basic forever and, 1982 was like we got the computer probably around april of 82 and i lived on it so it felt like i had been on that computer a long time even though like by the end of 1982 i was kind of done with basic at that time but i had made so many basic games in 1982 probably 20 you know maybe maybe 15. but i made a ton of these games i have all of those games except for the one i deleted um and I knew that I needed to learn assembly language because there was no way I was going to make anything cool like the games I was playing on the computer unless I learned that language. And I remember when I was during those three years when I was going to, to, um, to different uh, businesses and stuff to, <laughs> to use computers, when I was on at this one place, uh, my friend Rob was there. He's the one who showed me about, you know, he showed me the university mainframe and all that. He was there with me, and he's, and uh, and I was like, God, I want to make, I want to make this, I want to make this. He was showing me Gorgon by Nasser Jabelli. It was a really cool Defender game, and uh, and he said, Oh, you want to know what you have to learn? I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> so he like resets the computer, and he goes into the monitor, and he lists, he he shows me memory, and he goes, That's machine language. You need to learn that. And I'm like, What? That's a bunch <laughs> of numbers. And he goes, Yeah, games are just numbers, like everything on a computer. I'm like. No way. <laughs> now I can look at the wall of hex and numbers and tell you exactly what everything means. But back then it was like hieroglyphics. And I'm like, oh my God, that's going to be so hard. But okay, I guess I have to do it. You know, and um, how old Christmas were you? Of, 
Let me think. Um, yeah, 14. I think I turned 15 in the fall of 82. So um, by the fall of 82, when I just turned 15, I was so ready to learn machine language or assembly language. And I asked my parents at Christmas for a book called um, Assembly Lines, the book. That was the name of it. I really wanted that book. And then there was another book that, that uh, uh, Apple Art Graphics and Arcade Game Designed by Jeffrey Stanton. I really wanted that book too because it showed you how to do bitmap graphics, which is what all these games are using. So they got me the book, both books, that Christmas. And I, within like five pages of reading the assembly language book, I knew how to program an assembly. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> And I got on the computer and I just typed in something new that I came up with and it ran. I'm like, no way. It's because I've been reading the manual, the, the reference guide that came with the Apple II, just looking at this for years, just like, why does this make sense? You know, I mean, it's, I, there's nothing that shows me step by step how these things work. It's just a bunch of reference stuff. And this book finally showed me very simply like how to do a very simple program. And I came up with something different to see if it worked. Because that was the only way that I could like. Of course, you type in something from a book, and that'll work. But I wanted to come up with something, so I came up with something really quick. It was only a few lines, and it worked. I'm like, oh my god! So I started coding assembly and learning it as fast as I could, because <laughs> during the first week of January, we were leaving California to move to England, and my computer went on a boat for half a year. Oh my god! So Jeez. the thing I just learned assembly, and I'm about to explode with games. And my computer is taken away from me for half a year. Did this thing so, work when it arrived? <laughs> what did yeah, you? Yeah, it did. Luckily, it did. What did you do in those six so what months? I did, so what I did was I wrote Besides a shitload suffer. of games on paper. On paper, and so I really learned assembly language uh, slash machine language because I wanted to. I wanted it to, to. I wanted to get this going really quickly. So I would come up with. Um, I'm and I'm reading this graphics book as well, right? So I'm learning how to do bitmap stuff. I'm doing all of this on paper. And, uh, and so I'm writing the assembly for, for how I think these routines should go. And then I am using the, 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 the assembly language book to translate the assembly into machine code, which is just hex numbers for the different, you know, for the different lines. So if I got myself on an Apple II computer, I could quickly just type the hex into memory and run it. I don't need an assembler because you need an assembler to turn assembly language into machine code. <laughs> but with machine code, you can just type it directly into a monitor and run it. So luckily our school had Apple II computers in the lab and I could go in during lunch and I would just spend my lunchtime typing my code that I would write at, at night on the kitchen table and, uh, and type it in to see if these little functions would run and do the things I was, that I was trying to do and like they all pieced together into a game. And still no so, interference yeah. from anybody at the school. Just No, actually the goes. funny thing is when I got to... When I got to school, it was the middle of the, because it's January, it was the middle of the year. So it was second semester. And I found out when I got to this new school that um, I didn't need to take PE for a second year because in California, <laughs> you had to have two years of PE. I didn't need to do PE. So they had this computer programming in basic class. I'm like, can I take that? Jeez. And the counselor said, well, you're going to have to get permission from the teacher because this is like, this is second semester. You didn't go through first semester. I'm like, uh, I won't have a problem. <laughs> so I went and I, I, yeah, so I got to talk to the teacher. She asked me a bunch of questions. I'm like, yeah, I know 6502. So, um, <laughs> like I'm learning 6502. I can, I can write code in 6502 and I showed her some stuff and she's like, um, oh my God. All right. 
So the second day I come to school, the first day she gives me the approval to be in her class. The second day when I come into her class, she tells the class, read chapter whatever and use the, you know, use the Apple II to test your stuff. And she's like, John, come with me. And I go with her and she drives me in her car across base to a place called the Aggressor Squadron. And she takes me in to meet this guy who's a captain there. And he's like, hey, how's it going? You know, you you, here you really, you're a whiz at computers, you know? And so he gets on the phone and he says a bunch of code words. And then this giant bank vault door opens up and, and he had them all put away all the confident, confidential stuff because it was a classified vault. And he took me into the very back of the vault and they had a Chromemco mini computer on this desk. And he's like, you think you could program that? And I'm like, well, let me see. So I got on it and I checked it out and it was using the CPM operating system, which was, you know, that's Unix basically. Um, and so I was like, CPM, man, let me see. It's got HP Basic. Yeah, I can program this. This is Unix, I know. So I was this. like, how, yeah. how would you like a, yeah, exactly. How would <laughs> you, you how would you like a job? He's like, how would you like a job? I'm like, hell yeah. So they gave me a job programming. Uh, and who was that teacher who brought you there? Did you ever like that was reconnect my with math, My math teacher. Holy shit. Oh yeah, we're on Facebook, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It's like such yeah, a so leg that... <laughs> So, so, so John, cool. how, how, how did you go from, so that's your first programming job, right? And, and, and at this point you've already programmed a bunch, like you said, 20 or so games yourself at home. Uh, mm -hmm. to various degrees of quality and, and you know, they're all, they're all shitty. Yeah, they're shitty. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so you're, you're living in England at this point, right? Or yeah. 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 So when did you, when did you come back to the States and work with Softdisk? Um, I came back in 85. I graduated in 85. And during that time is when I discovered the formula that I needed to to get my games published in magazines, because that was another thing that people did back in the 80s. Games were published in magazines sometimes, and people would get the magazine and type this whole thing in, like they're the programmer. Yeah. And if it worked right, that's great. And, it, and you get a game that you just typed in for free, like the cost of a magazine. So I'd, I had a lot of rejection slips for years before that, but finally I figured out what what the secret formula was, which is a mixture of basic and assembly language to keep the size down, but for it to do as much as, as it possibly can. So the assembly has to be the core loop and the most, the coolest stuff happening where the basic stuff is is um, high scores, menus, stuff like that that can be really done you know, quickly and easily in basic where in assembly it would be like a hundred lines of code. So um, the mixture of those two things together meant that I could, I finally sold my first game uh, for a hundred dollars to a magazine called Insider, and the game took me probably 30 minutes to make, and uh, and it was called Scout, Scout Search, and you're basically got a procedural maze, and there are 10 white dots, and they're the little scouts, and there's a red grizzly bear bouncing around everywhere, <laughs> and you're trying to rescue the dots before the grizzly bear hits them, and when the grizzly bear hits them, you hear a little squeak, like, <laughs> so, because he just ate a screaming scout, and then, uh, and then you basically pick them all up, and then that's the level. And and every every level you go to the next level only if there's another scout still left. So the scouts just keep dwindling down until there's no none left, and like, yay, made it to level twelve or whatever. And so that was like a thirty minute game, and it sold for hundred bucks. And from that point on, I started making games that were the combination of 
basic and assembly and I sold everything that I made uh, from that day on. What was, was the, the ratio between getting revenue from this is enabling me to keep doing it and this is how I want my primary income to, to be sourced for the rest of my life? Like what was, what was the mixture there? Well, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. That was, right. <laughs> I wanted to make games forever. That was, there was no <laughs> doubt that I was going to do that. So this was the way to just kind of the market, you know, changed so much back then because it was so fragmented with all the different kinds of computers. You know, now we have fragmentation in operating systems in, 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 you know, that's main, the main fragmentation today. Back then it was hardware fragmentation. So um, it was so many computers. In 1984, there were probably at least 30 different computers. Um, if you get a Byte magazine from around then, or creative, creative computing, you could see like every week new computers being released constantly. Some like some of them have like a joystick in the next to the keyboard, and it comes with the language fourth in ROM. You know, just stuff like that. Just crazy shit was being released all the time, and just super fragmenting everything. So the market was like. What's going to win? Who knows? But it ended up being the, the, the IBM PC that was winning. So by the end of the 80s, um, it, had, it had won. Like it was a 16-bit machine and all 8-bit stuff had died by the end of the 80s. And by that time, I had, by, by 1989, that was when I went to Softdisk. And in, you know, like March 20th, I think, is when I went to Softdisk in 1989. And before that, I'd already had three startup companies at that time. I'd worked at Origin uh, Systems, you know, where all the Ultimas and stuff were made. Yeah. Um, I got my first job in 87 in the industry. So between my graduating high school in 85 and two years, two and a half years later going to Origin, um, that was me still making games, but I was like working in uh, retail software stores or Burger King um, Taco Bell, uh, <laughs> you know, and I was still coding games and selling games like nonstop still. And I probably slowed down to, you know, probably in the 85, 86, 87, probably just a few games a year because I was having to do full-time stuff. It might've been five Drag. games a year. Yeah. But then, but then finally, uh, got my job at origin. It was like, this is like, my goal has been met. And the only goal I've ever had was I just want to make games every day. That's it. I don't, care about other goals other goals are just temporary <laughs> the real goal is to just make games every day so when i finally did that in 87 you know i had the just before then you know i published all these games right that was through my first game company that i started in 82 when i got the apple II computer i started my little company called capital ideas software so any games that i did sell had the you know copyright you know capital Ideas software in it and i sold by the time I got to Origin, um, actually a little even after Origin because I was still publishing stuff. I'd, I'd come home from work and I would make more shit and sell it. So I, I was doing you know two things at once. I'm, I'm working during the day and then when I come home, I'm making more stuff at night, selling it to disc magazines like Uptime and, uh, and still putting it under Capital Ideas software until I think it was 1988 is when I stopped doing that because then I started my second game company called Inside Out Software. I left Origin after only eight months because I had the opportunity to start a company with with someone else, like co-found a company with somebody else. So it was called Inside Out Software in the middle of 1988. And I did the Commodore 64 uh, port from the Apple II to the, to the Commodore. And my co-founder did the Apple II to the PC port. We're just next to each other coding, 
coding this thing. Best plan. And then I started working on, yeah, we basically did this. I did it for about eight months. And then um, a game that I was porting from the Commodore to the Apple II was being funded by um, Epics in the US, EPYX. <laughs> Um, and they had basically were running out of money. So they had to cancel all their ports to save money for their in-house development that they were like betting the company on. So when that happened, I knew that 8-bit was dead. I'm, mm. I need to get the hell out of 8-bit. And the easiest way for me to do that is to get out of that company and to go somewhere where I could just learn the PC all day. So I told my co-founder. Did you own an IBM at you. that point? No, no, nope. <laughs> nope. So you're still continuing the trend of of finding access to machines wherever you happen to be, not not necessarily at home. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't have to do it at that point because, like, because I had a full time job, I was on a machine all day. So right. when I was at Origin, I had a, a an Apple II GS and a Commodore 128D next to me because I was I was porting the game from the Apple to the Commodore. And the cool thing I did there was I hated the big keyboard on the Commodore. <laughs> It was just I don't know how anyone could code on that thing, and the Apple II GS is like is like a Mac keyboard it's today. A lot it's of the Germans, same keyboard, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so it felt like a great thing. So I basically decided I'm going to make the Commodore game on the Apple. So the Apple is my dev machine, and I'm just going to transfer it over to the Commodore and run it. <laughs> and so that was my cross uh, cross development. Uh, the first time I did cross development was I'm programming an entire game for the Commodore, but on an Apple II GS at three and a half megahertz and you know like really fast hard drive and all this stuff and then when it needs to run on the the um commodore i i run this program using a cable that i created from telephone wire and soldering all this shit plugging them to the computers together and uh, and writing my own transfer software to get the stuff across because there wasn't a way to do that back then there wasn't a way to take stuff from an apple II and put it on a Commodore. and that's you the day you learned the word heretic yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so anyway, I, I made this transfer system and I ported the game like that. And that, that cross-development thing was actually a pretty cool idea. And um, But but um, when it all went down, like when 8-Bit was done, I made it easy on my co-founder and just said, hey, I'm going to get, <laughs> I'll leave. So my salary is not uh, pulling anyone down and, and uh, you can pay these other people a little bit easier. And then you have the company and I'm going to take off. So when I take off, took off, I went to live with a friend of mine um, it was just for a few months. His name is Lane Roth. And he uh, he was a really great programmer. And he was working on the Dark Castle Mac to Apple II GS port. And I got to do work on that. So I did all the art for that. I converted a black and white game over to 16 color game on the GS. Um, that, that was published um, by 360 Pacific back then. Uh, so I worked on that. We worked on an operating system for Infocom. If you remember, Infocom was the uh, Infocom first, yeah, yeah. So I wrote, we wrote the, an operating system for four of their last games that they made uh, on the Apple II. It needed to be a 4K OS that was hidden from everything in the computer. So we hid it underneath bank switched memory, and uh, and so uh, you know my my Lane wrote the uh, RWTS function which reads a track uh, reads a sector off of the disk and i wrote all of the code on top of that that makes it an operating system that is that was an invisible plugin for prodos which was the the operating system on the apple that everybody used so your code could still issue these prodos commands and i would interpret them and use our super stripped down os to do exactly what you wanted but <laughs> really fast and really small 
so anyway, we did we did work for Infocom and and all this stuff, and we created a company called Ideas from the Deep at that time. So that was just me and Lane, and we did these games, and we also did um, we did uh, Zapperoids, um, which was our like we're going to soft disk game. So we went down to soft disk, and we interviewed there. And it was like the greatest interview with the guys there at at at, uh, at Softest, and they're like, "We want to hire you." And I said, "All right, um, do you guys need any games for you know any of your discs? Because you have like Commodore discs, Mac disc, um, Commodore Mac, Apple II, Apple II GS, and PC discs. So do you guys need you know maybe um, maybe an Apple II version and then a GS version because we don't have a PC right now." Mm. So how about this? We will go fly back. We'll make this game. And by the time we're here, we will finish those games. And they're like, what? <laughs> so that's what we did. We flew back, immediately started making Zapperoids. Uh, Lane worked on the Apple IIGS version. I worked on the Apple II version. We didn't share any code because we were going too fast to do that. Right. So we you just were, shared the design. You were kind of working in your own kind of silos, right? But you were working on different versions, but you, were, you weren't you yeah, know, we were, we're, sharing we're together. code. Yeah, you weren't sharing assets. No, we were not even assets because his, <laughs> yeah, his graphics had to be in a completely different format than my graphics, and our code had to be different because he's using system routines where I can't have any because there wasn't any in the mode that I was using. So, um, so we just shared the design. Here's what the design is: make it right, and uh, and then we would like tweak our design together. Like, you know, it might it would be cool if like the, there was a thing that showed where the aliens are coming from and stuff and. Anyway, so he's just like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll put that in. I was like, I'm doing it like this. Okay, yeah, I'll use that calculation. But it's still not so we quite the same it. thing as like working in a team and delegating tasks. It's still like no, a very yeah, linear not. thing. Yeah, it was it was the same way that we've been making stuff for, you know, at that point, 10 years. So we did. We finished the game. And when we got to Softdisk, you know, two weeks later, we like, here they are. <laughs> and then Rad. as soon as I started working at Softdisk there, I pretty quickly converted... I basically made a PC version of my Apple II game. So there was an Apple II version, a PC version, and then the Apple II GS version. So, so, so do you do you do you remember when you when you came back to Softdisk the the first day you you met Carmack and Adrian and so on because they were also what they were at Softdisk at this time as well, right? Um, no, no, I hired them. Oh, <laughs> so hired I was them. I was at Softdisk in 1989, and I worked at Softdisk say for a whole year until 1990 around. A, say April, because I know we got there in March. It was for a little over a year. Probably April time period is when I was finally just done with um, not being able to make cool games. Like, I wanted to make games, and, and the problem is that everything that that company was set up to do was to ship at the end of a month. Wow. Every yeah. month you start a new project, and it ships at the end of the month. Meanwhile, very you're, still, limiting in what you can you're make. still in this mode of the next game, I want to learn how to do this, and the next game, I want to learn how to do that, and that takes well, at, more time. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that at uh, that time because uh, I needed to learn the PC. I needed to learn all the hardware of the PC to even make games. So my first thing getting that whole first year was like me learning everything about the PC, uh, how to program an 8086, how to everything about the BIOS, everything about the ports, everything about all of the stuff on the machine. And I would every I was delivering stuff every single month. You know, it was a utility or it was a port of an Apple II game that I did. You know, like I needed to, to produce every month. And when I got there, it would take too long to learn assembly. And I thought, you know, like I don't want to program in basic. 
anymore, you know, so um, I used Pascal as my first language there. So I started making games in Pascal. It was only it was only a couple months I made games in Pascal because at the same time I'm learning assembly as fast as I can. And then I did assembly only after that point. So I was writing TSRs and I was writing really fast tools to, you know, do things like view view files quickly or TSRs that would do file viewing, you know, instantaneous pops up. Um, lots of cool stuff that was hidden in memory. Um, and so then at that point, you're already doing games. like utility stuff, which we all know, like kind of yeah. was you, a trend. Well, I'd been doing tools on yeah. the Apple II as well. Right. I did lots of tools on the Apple, and uh, and because this is like a nonstop thing for me, when I got home, I would continue writing games for the Apple II soft disk for disk. Right. <laughs> so I'm working on the PC. I come home. I'm writing games for the Apple II version because that they give me money for that, um, so I can sell those things. And so that was that was that was I was it was like nonstop making games like I, I, like I had to fulfill myself at least at home but I wanted it to be more than that so I told the owner of the company hey I'm gonna take off you know like I gotta make games and I can't do it here because of these timelines and I'm not I'm not doing what I want to do which is like make games constantly so he said don't leave we'll set up a whole game thing for you how about that and I said well only if I can hire a team and I can do it in two months instead of one month. <laughs> Damn. So but, he's like, no problem. But at I'm this like, point, you still, oh my God. you still hadn't been in a, in a position where you were delegating tasks to like different team members. It was still like a uh, nope, Romero production front still, to back. So this, yep. so yeah. these guys, you know, whoever they were, ended up being, <laughs> were like the first ones that you ended up going, you're working, working this together. and figuring out what your roles are. You know, that ends up being organic for a while. Oh, and we at some point it needs to stratify. Yeah. It happened pretty quickly. Yeah. When um, when I was putting so when he officially said we can do this thing, uh, marketing and accounting and everything had to spool up a whole new set of books, uh, marketing plans, fulfillment plan. It's like a huge deal to create a whole new subscription product, right? So it was taking them a while, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna I need to find a programmer to to work with me. I got to find a really good programmer. And on one of the games I made at home and sold to the Apple II disc, um, when they published that disc, on the same disc was another guy named John Carmack who had written a tennis game. And I made a game called Substalker on there, and he made a game called Tennis. And I remember seeing Tennis going, wow, this guy's a good programmer. Substalker's Meanwhile, a cool name, I'm though. like, <laughs> I know. I've been making game names for years, right? So I was, <laughs> I was pretty good at it. So um, when... When I thought about uh, I need to hire a programmer, the first person I thought about was John. But then I'm like, oh wait a minute, he I need a PC coder because this is a PC disk. Um, you know, like at that time I could program the Apple II and the Commodore 64 and the PC, you know, all in assembly and stuff. And so I need somebody who can program the PC really well. And I talked to the Apple II guys because he, he had been sending them Apple II stuff. And they said, oh, no, he's really good. So we've tried to hire him twice already, and he's turned us down. And, I, and I'm like, well, I need him to be PC. And he's like, oh, he knows a PC as well. I'm like, well, how's that? He's sending you guys Apple II stuff. And they said, well, he found out that if he could make a PC version of his Apple II games, that we would pay twice as much for the PC version. So he's making three times the money. <laughs> so what he did was he went and rented a PC for a week, learned it, ported the game, and returned the PC. 
Damn. So he learned how to code the PC in a week, imported his game in a week, and then returned the rental. <laughs> so somebody out there and here, like, acquired here that PC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, I need to talk to this guy. And, and they're like, well, we tried to hire him twice, and it's not going to do it. And I said, I think if he talks to me, he's going to be coming here. Because, um, you know, it's you, find, you don't find, um, you know, people that good everywhere. And he... You know, he probably hasn't talked to anybody that has as much experience as I have. Yeah, because I was just full of myself back then. So anyway, <laughs> so they did. They got they got him uh, an interview, and he came down, and we had like the best meeting ever. Lane came with me, so it was yet another hardcore assembly language programmer who could do multiple computers. He did Apple II, the GS, and the Macintosh. You know, and we basically both of us together co covered everything except for the Amiga, basically in the in the Atari ST in the eight hundred. So it was everything. So so John was like massively impressed. He wanted that job at that point. So we hired him immediately. And when he finally moved down, the first thing I had him do was I didn't even have the office yet. I didn't have the room. So I told. I told uh, John, just make a game and it'll go to the Apple II department. You'll be helping them before we actually get our room. So I hired you when I could get you, but I have to wait a little bit before that happens. Mm. So so he made a game called Catacomb for the Apple II, gave it to the Apple II department. I finally get the room. It's a 10 by 10 room. Uh, we, we, we basically click out all the stupid fluorescent lights. It's going to be a dark room. And, uh, and I, because the owner um the owner of the company at that point had kind of mentally pivoted to this this group is going to save this company <laughs> so i was going to get anything Dangerous i needed to tell so I'm you. like i need 386 dx33s with 4 megs of ram dude like i need 3 of those you know you want your four company of them. i need 4 <laughs> yeah that sounds very so, expensive <laughs> yeah back then it was really expensive so he yeah. did it we got all the four four of those DX33s, and I wanted a, a Nintendo, and I wanted Zelda, and I wanted Super Mario 3 and the Life Force, which is a really cool shooter. Yeah. And we got that, and we could have it just running all day long in the corner. And it was like the coolest room. I like put my boombox back here, and we're just playing metal all day, and you know, for all of us. And we're just we basically just start coding. And, and the funny thing was the first thing that we had to do was like marketing says, okay, we 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 know that we screwed up and we took too much time getting you guys your office and starting up, and we need to put a demo disc out with our with our flagship PC product that shows everybody what you guys can do, and we need to hurry up and do it. So this is the only time this will happen, but we want to put two games on this disc, and you got to do it in a month. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this is the opposite of the deal which is one game in two months you want two games in one month oh do you have a like, it's only you can do one in a week, like, so. it's only it's only for games. the demo yeah it's like it's only for the demo and i didn't i mean carmack was was he was really good but you know um i untested at that point in that didn't way. know yeah how dedicated he was you know but like it seemed like he was looking for that kind of dedication so so we when we got in the room i was like okay this is what you have to do john we don't have time to design a new thing because it's one month. So we need to take something that we made already, like you just made Catacomb. You need to make that on the PC. I'm going to take a game I made a couple years ago called Dangerous Dave, and I'm going to make that on the PC. And we're going to do it starting today, 
and we have to ship it by the end of the month. And we need a shell program that boots up and shows the games and shows the text and all that kind of shit. Um, and we're probably going to have to use compression to get these two games on the disc. So we have to figure that out shit, that, that as well while we're doing all, all the, the other stuff, right? So um, that's what we did. We just coded like crazy. And n insanely, when I was doing, like, as programmers back then, we were always competitive, like just innately competitive when you're an assembly language programmer and you have testosterone blowing through your system constantly. You're just competitive, right? So um, so we were just like, let's see how fast we can get this done. How fast can you get yours done? How, how good is your game going to be, you know? And so um, when I was making Dangerous Dave, uh, you know, on the Apple II, it was just a game in high res. But on the PC, it's like there's a CGA mode and an yeah. EGA mode and a VGA mode and... I'm going to do all three modes. How about that? I'm going to do all the <laughs> graphics for three different graphic modes. I'm going to let after you switch the bars, modes. The, after the insane deadline has already been set. You know, you're just yeah, exactly. This is the insane deadline. Yeah. And I'm like, how about this? In the middle of a jump, I'm going to let you switch to graphic modes at any time. You can be doing anything. <laughs> and then you can be jumping and then hit the F2 key, switch graphic <laughs> modes, and continue to jump in a completely different mode. So I did all that. So I think it's the only game on the PC that ever did that. Um, so you can switch between any of those three graphic modes. And, uh, and it was funny because I started making the, the game in, in assembly language. And John's just like, why are you doing that? You can program in C, right? I'm like, oh, my God, I totally forgot about C. The funny thing is I was looking forward to doing my own, uh, my own disc and not being in the PC department because the rule in the PC department was if you don't know the languages that George knows, you can't program in them. And he only knew basic and assembly, which is why I did assembly the whole time over there. But I wanted to do basic. And they said, no, you can't because George doesn't know it. And you, he's never leaving. And you might leave. And he might need to look at your code. And if it's in C, he can't fix it. So I'm like, this is stupid. Okay. So when I got it, I was all like, I can't wait to have my own thing and do C. And as soon as we started, I forgot about that rule. So then John reminded me, I'm like, oh, yeah, what am I doing? This is this has to be in C. So I immediately switch over to C, and, you know, we got the games Mid and everything This is done. after the goal's already been set, and you're no, letting No, we're C. talking within, within days, within days. <laughs> this is, things happen so fast, yeah, you have yeah. no idea. Like, the amount of things that happened in one single day was insane. Um, and, and we basically would work, you know, at that point on that disc, it was, at, you know, 16 hours a day just to get that first month going. And then after that point, we knew that we could slow down on it. But then when we decided that we were going to make Commander Keen, we were back to 16-hour days because we had to do an eight-hour day from 10 to 6 on soft disk stuff. Mm -hmm. And then from 6 to 2 in the morning on Commander Keen because we wanted to ship for Christmas. So um, we made you know two games for soft disk in that time and three Commander Keen games in that time in uh, three months. So, so five, before, five before games. We... Before we jump into Commander Keen, uh, tell tell us the story about the the fan letters and the uh, and the Super Mario Brothers three demo uh, requested yeah. by Scott Miller himself. What what was that about? It was very creepy. That still exists, yeah, by the I way. I had, <laughs> I, yeah, I had I had them up on. I got these things, these fan letters, and I put them up on the wall, and um, I thought I had these cool fans, you know. I didn't notice that they were all on yellow lined paper or that the handwriting was the same. And I didn't notice <laughs> that the address was the same. <laughs> you have this one. But I was, reading, 
I was reading PC Games Magazine one day, and I got to the end of a, a, an article on Cross, and at the very end, it said, this guy Scott Miller, you know, and it's got his address at the end. I'm like, wait a minute. Where have I seen that? <laughs> I know that address. And I go... <laughs> no, <laughs> I, look at the wall. I look at the wall, I'm like, no fucking way. Oh, my God. He's psycho. You know, I looked at all of them. I, I, I pulled them all down. So like, this isn't even real. This isn't even real. He's in the so bushes outside. I wrote, it was crazy. So um, I wrote him back. And um, I, wrote him, I wrote him a letter that was just like, you are psycho. You know, I can't remember what I, I, I actually still have that letter. Um, <laughs> and then I decided to wait till the next day. And then I wrote a cool down letter. But I included the original one telling him this is how pissed off I was. And and I sent it to him. And, and Scott, you know, he when he's focused on stuff, he doesn't care about, like, any negative stuff. So he was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just want to get you on the phone because I need you to make a game for me, you know. I'm like, but you're a psycho. He's like, no, it's just to get in touch with you. That's how I, yeah, I yeah, do that's like a you know? non-compete and everything. Whatever it you takes. Get this call. Yeah. Right. yeah. So anyway, it was, it, was, it was actually a funny way to get in touch with, with Scott. And then... Um, we, at the same time, you know, we discovered the scrolling trick and, and make the Super Mario 3 demo over a week, um, putting it together to try and send, you know, send it to Nintendo. And, and then I think that's what I sent to Scott to show him, like, he wanted, he wanted one of my earlier games. And I just said, um, I just said, dude, this stuff is even cooler. So I sent it, sent him that, and it was like nuclear explosion, yeah. and um, and then it was like Commander Keen, and so that's how. Keen was there an element happened. of of you developing these techniques, and then, you know, showing soft disk like this is what we're capable of, and they go, yeah, that's neat, that's enough for the deadline, whatever, and you're going. Don't you guys know that this is like really, really fucking cool? Don't you get that? No, 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 <laughs> no. no. It was too cool. I knew yeah. it was too cool for Softus. Immediately. I was like, they were enabling you, but they were, you know, they were the man. <laughs> how, they weren't going to. How, how did it feel looking at at all the Japanese games on on consoles? Because at this at this point, when you're looking at the NES, it, even back in in you know '89 when uh, Super Mario Bros. Three came out, it's it's so far ahead. Of anything that's even conceivable on a PC, oh, and here you are, like, still you're working cutting edge, you're working assembly, and then C, and you're working with Carmack, and then you're just watching these Japanese dudes on an eight-bit machine making all this crazy stuff. Like, how how was it looking at those guys? Uh, it wasn't. It, it's funny because it was a different world, so we didn't look at it like, oh, we'll never be able to do cool stuff. It was like that machine was made for that. And what was impressive was just the designs that they had. Yeah. And that's not a hardware thing. That's a that's a design thing. That's a mental thing. So um, so it was like, we want to make stuff that cool on PCs because that's the challenge. It's not a challenge to do it on those machines because that's what they yeah. do. But it's hard to make this thing do the, that. So um, so that's where the challenge was. So we did, we, 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 we worshiped at Shigeru's temple and all that. You know, he's the, he's the best. Um, well, Super Mario Bros. 3 is, I, I would say, still undoubtedly, for me personally, the best game ever made. In terms like, of scope, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It's still insane. Um, yeah, it's, I beat it's, it. still, it's, still, it's still insane. <laughs> I'm, I'm still, if I sit down and play SMB3, um, I just want to keep playing. It's still yeah. so freaking I loved good. it. 
I loved but every was, one of them. There was a time there around when Doom came out, when the PC kind of overtook, I would say, for the first time. Kind of overtook because then the console started struggling. You had the PlayStation yeah. version of Doom; it kind of struggled. You, you know, you had the the uh, Saturn version and, and so on, and Jaguar. Like, how did it feel being part of that first wave of okay, we finally got the PC to overtake the dedicated game machines? That was with Wolfenstein. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and we didn't even. Um, we didn't even think about that. It was just like, this is what we're doing on this platform. This is a game platform. And we're going to do what we can to take advantage of it in the best way possible that nothing else can. Um, so that's basically what we did. <laughs> I can't stay on forever, but, <laughs> but um, I can't. I mean, it would. I would be here forever if I kept of on course. talking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, to, I mean, the rest of, of that story, um, you know, from Catacomb to Wolf to, to Doom and Quake and everything is incredibly well documented. Hope we get a movie at some point. Um, there's actually that really cool Twitter account doing the, the Masters of Doom book without words. Like, it's this wordless yeah, comic. Yeah, there's, so, there's also really going cool. to be a Netflix. There's going to be a Netflix show. Yeah. As far as, is it HBO of, of it's the... It's USA uh, Networks. Do you know who's going to play awesome. you? Yeah, yeah, it's all. It's just do a Google. You'll find out. You'll see the it's guy. It's you, right? You're playing you. You get to play you. No, no, <laughs> no. John Johnson. So they got actual actors, <laughs> and not somebody who's old, you know. But I mean, yes, uh, a lot of that um, is. I don't want to say exhaustively documented. There's always wrinkles. There's always different perspectives. Um, even you know Kushner's book. Uh, there's like lots of kind of ways to kind of go about that. But now. You know, you you put out Sigil um, a year and a half ago, and I, I know you're you're back into like dev mode. You're deep in this cave with with the other things you're working on. But obviously, Sigil came out of somewhere. Um, you did your your E1 M8 um, B, which was really cool. Like uh, it was like a couple of years before that, a year before it was Sigil in or 2016. So? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I guess the 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 question of what made you come back to doing that would be kind of trite. But what was it actually like going back and like doing a Doom map? I know you used like Doom Builder. Um, yeah, but like coming back into and working with the same entities, working with the same gameplay loops, uh, playing those levels, it felt like you know you were riding a bike, right? Like it just yeah. it flowed like, from the same like source. Doom is back. Yeah, yeah. It was it was like I never stopped making levels. It was really simple. You know, it wasn't a problem designing same way that I designed before. So it was really, I was just doing the same thing that I had to do before, which is like come up with an idea for a level that's going to be cool and uh and then just make it you know and uh it was really not not hard you know it just takes a lot of time it's the same toy box right it, it's kind of got that mario nintendo thing where you like you have your koopas you know how they work you have your your goombas you know how they work and oh, you can totally. put them together yeah. in any number of ways you even started using like a, a decorate object as a shootable switch semi-consistently <laughs> yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that was uh, my that was my new thing but it's the same toolbox, and so in some ways, and I think we've seen this a little bit with like Mario Maker, right, where you, you give people a consistent way to approach, approach the same tools, the same entities, and you get n number of mutations out of that, and it, it can go exactly. on forever. Another yeah, I mean, Doom, thing, yeah. Doom has been doing that since we released it. You know, I mean, levels are released every single day, hundreds of thousands of them, so... Yeah, and some of them are crazy art mods that you know replace everything and and the code's all different and it's all running on gz doom sigil was a little bit more vanilla but you still ended up getting a lot of flexibility out of it a lot of cool ideas that you know even people in the scene haven't seen too much of 
Yeah, yeah. It needed to be. Um, it needed to feel like we made it back then. So it wasn't like, oh, this is a weird, like very different than the original series because it's super detailed or whatever. And it's Doom 1, which is really limited in the palette of what you can put in a level. So um, so I was I was going to make it feel like it was an original thing and do try and do some new things in it. So there's several new things in it. Um, and like for me, Buckethead's music was like the biggest yeah. cool yeah. thing for me. I, I think you yeah. succeeded. I, I think, you know, uh, on a finishing note here, uh, I think it's also a good time to to wrap this up. You know, going from the past to, you know, the present day, which is kind of still the past. Now we, we have a <laughs> yeah. new, new episode of Doom from Romero, but it feels it feels like not only uh, does it feel like Doom, but it also feels like here's Doom, but with all of the additional game design experience and knowledge added on top. Kind of what. How can I push the limits as much as possible yeah, yeah. without it feeling at all? And in that respect, and the age doesn't matter. Publish it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Full circle, man. Full circle. And there's an aspect where it's not even like a retro thing anymore, right? Like this is objectively good stuff. It's objectively good gameplay. It, it feels good. The pinky hitting the floor it still feels good every single time. A billion times after yeah. doing it after the first time. <laughs> Uh, so, did you get everything out of Sigil that you wanted to do? Was there anything kind of on the cutting room floor? Like, I could have no, no, kind of pushed it in this everything. direction. It was totally complete. Nah, it was, yeah, it was exactly everything I wanted to do. I worked on those levels a lot. I mean, there's a lot of data in there. Unless you, if you don't make Doom levels, um, there's a shitload of information on every line segment. And those levels have thousands of lines. So I had to have a, I had a team of, you know, five, seven people going over what I made to make sure that technically they're correct down to the, you know, the values on every line that, in that I'm not misusing something. And there were so many technical issues um, that had to get fixed just because, you know, it's an old game and it's got specific rules. And if you do this thing, you know, like, like being able to have this, um, being able to add a ton of line segments, yeah, you know, nowadays because there's more memory and these source ports are limit removing, um, it means I can put more detail into it, but not too much, not to like make it not look like it's like like old school, but um, just a little bit more so it looks it looks a little bit better than what you remember it to be. Liberating, um, hopefully. Yeah, and and yeah, but I can do like new things that I haven't seen in Doom levels before. And, uh, but that just means more line segments to double check and, you know, like using different node builders and stuff, because maybe there's a slime trail on one level. So use a different node level, node builder for that one level. And, um, God, it's like having to use different versions of doom, like can't record a demo with GZ doom. You have to use a different like chocolate doom to record the yep. level that's going to be in the GZ doom in the wad, you know? So it's like unbelievable amount of technical things just to make this thing solid when it comes out so people don't run it and go oh my god how sloppy you know because um, people immediately will take it and break that wad apart and look at every little piece of data in the wad so everything in the wad has to look good um which is a great you know, opportunity so I, you know it's how how a lot of people have learned it's how i've learned um and I've also learned a lot from, you know, you're putting out like the, the quake map sources, like being able to like finally after years and years, like tear those down properly. And there's a lot, like you said, a lot of information in there. Yeah. 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 There's but more yeah. Than, than quake for sure. Way more than quake. Quake had, you know, if you look at the, the map sources, 
there's a lot of like brush brushes, a shitload of brushes, and where those what those brushes are composed of. That's nothing like the quake the the doom stuff. Like right. The doom stuff is line segments, you know, with a, a top and a middle texture and a bottom texture, and what the offsets are on them, what the slide and line specials are. Front and back of every line has information on them. They reference sectors, which are different data structures. Uh, it's it's super complex. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, so it's a lot of stuff to double check. And, um, that's just kind of one of the reasons why it took so long to make it because I wanted it to be really solid when it came out. And I had a really great team that that's in the credits that, that did an amazing job double checking all that and helping out at whatever time I was able to work on it. You know, some of them are European. So it was like, Hey, it's one in the morning. Can you do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, you didn't have to make the crusher room. <laughs> that was, yeah. <laughs> that was painful. I fixed that. I fixed. I fixed that. It's 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 half of the the how bad it was when I first released. John, so one point two is a little less. John, it's it's fantastic, nevertheless, to see you back making uh, making games, making game games based on your roots, and also making brand new games with your wife. I want to thank you so much for taking your time tonight. Yeah, thanks, to, uh, thanks for having me here. To do this with us, uh, it's been a true Thanks, pleasure, and and I'm sure that uh, that all of the old school shooter fans are going to enjoy hearing about the past and how you got into gaming and all the cool stories about making games at the university and, and <laughs> terminals and everything. It's been a true pleasure, man. Thank you so much cool. for, uh, for yeah, joining thanks for having us. me here. Thank you, John. Thank you very much uh, for being here. Is awesome. Absolutely. All right.